Hey, this is Rob. This is episode 137 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. All right. Uh, I referenced it before walking in here, but this is another one of those moments with the Folly Coffee Podcast where I go, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> when I get a guest that I go, I'm not sure I'm qualified to be here, but I'm here with Sunnyside of the Best Ever Food Review Show. Thanks to Yia. If you've not heard of the Best Ever Food Review Show, over nine and a half million subscribers on right. YouTube. Mm-hmm. You've been doing it since I believe the first episode was posted 2015. That's correct. And since then, you've been traveling all around the world doing different like food reviews, checking out different food cultures, doing different like challenges of I've seen videos of like an inexpensive versus the best version, all these different cultures across uh, uh, really the world. And I put together a little minute and a half kind of compilation cool. uh, for those of you who may not be familiar. Is this a whole style of cooking that's going to be extinct? It is. It is oh going gosh. to be extinct. He touched down in Sri Lanka's capital city of Colombo <laughs> to try this country's renowned street food. Mm. Nice, eh? Mm-hmm. Should we try it out? We usually don't eat it with our hands. I don't know what I'm doing. We'll witness firsthand. Oh. oh my God, he thinks I want to fight. When a local tribe hunts down and cooks one of Sri Lanka's most brilliant birds. <laughs> Let's back up. You're going to witness Pakistan and Pakistani food like you've never seen it before. Oh, okay. So many things I've not expected that are happening right now. Here. Actually, I don't know what it is. I think this is raw beef. It's good to go. Yeah. You just sort of put it in? Yeah, you do whatever you need to do. You know? <laughs> Doves, the animal that symbolizes peace, is now in many pieces, actually. Are there any benefits to eating this? Okay, that's, I don't know if he's translating properly what I said. Rolling 700 of these in a day. Can you imagine? I bet Snoop Dogg would hire this guy. Have you ever had king crab? Yes, I did, but not live like this. Oh, you ate a dead one, not a live one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good idea. So- we are going to go fishing and trap porcupine. I'm sorry, trap. Trap? Trap, yes, trap. A porcupine. Porcupine. A porcupine. When we trap the porcupine, what will we do with it? Is it like a catch and release program? Uh, then we uh, go fishing. Oh, then we go fishing. <laughs> oh, See? That's a relief. Yeah, I thought he was going to say eat it. Thank God, man. So we don't yeah. eat it. Do we eat it? Yes. Oh. Oh, we eat it. I thought we just went fishing and then yeah, went home. It feels inevitable. That- <laughs> I had to, t- that last clip had to be the last one because I think it sums up the situations you get yourself into as you're traveling. Yeah, absolutely. But welcome to the Folly Coffee Podcast. I was surprised as I was reaching, I did not know you're originally from St. Cloud, Minnesota. So how does a dude born and raised in St. Cloud, Minnesota end up being who you are today? Right. Uh, well, it, it's been a long journey. I currently... I have the most viewed, most followed travel food show in the world, but it did not start that way. Uh, yes, I'm from St. Cloud originally. I went to school in Sauk Rapids. I'm, you know, one of six children, grew up poor, uh, you could say white trash, and by all means, I shouldn't have made it to where I am now. Um, growing up, uh, Sauk Rapids was great. I graduated though, and then I didn't really have any direction as to where I wanted to go, and I kind of lacked mentorship. Uh, I love my parents. My father's recently passed, but my father never made it past eighth grade and my mom didn't really make it past high school. And so there wasn't a lot I could lean on as far as guidance from them or mentorship from them. And they had their own problems to deal with at the time. And so I remember going to university. Actually, I went to a university. I went to a community college. I went to Rochester Community College, Mm -hmm. actually. 
And I, I went there because my friend was going there, and that's really the only reason. I, I didn't have any direction, a clear direction in my life. And what's interesting is I, I did do video in high school, but I didn't, and I, I flirted with the idea of doing it in university or college, but I, I just didn't do it. I just followed my friend, and then it just was kind of a lot of aimless wandering from age 18 to about age 24. So I've failed out of university three different times. I've, I could tell you the schools, because usually <laughs> if I'm talking to somebody in Asia, they're like, it doesn't matter, but you would actually know the places I failed out of. Uh, Rochester, St. Cloud State, mm -hmm. and uh, St. Cloud Tech. So I, I would always start these things and I could never finish it because just the classroom wasn't my thing. But beyond that, I, I didn't really understand what my purpose was. It, my studying, my courses weren't plugged into a greater purpose or goal. And so at one point, I started interning at 104.7 KCLD in St. Cloud. And I really enjoyed that job because now I'm doing something creative. It's hands-on. I'm not reading books about how radio waves work. I'm just actually doing radio. And of course, I was doing radio from 11 p.m. to 5 a.m. <laughs> because that's the slot that they give people like me who are kind of interning and training and they give you minimum wage. But really, it wasn't about the money. It's like, okay, now I can kind of build a skill set. And around age maybe 23 uh, or 24, I tried applying for a job in a different market and I didn't get the job. I'm not sure why it might be because uh, I got a phone call halfway through. <laughs> And like, I couldn't figure out how to turn my phone off. Halfway through the interview, <laughs> I was trying to turn off my phone. And then finally I found out it was my mom and she was calling to wish me good luck in my interview. <laughs> that's, like, that's the ultimate, like, I know you mean well, but you don't realize what you're doing. Okay, I can't be mad because yes. you're trying to be nice. I know, I should have put it on silent. It's my fault. And so I didn't get that job. And I was, I just felt like I'm 24 now. I've worked so many dead end jobs in my life. I've, I've, be, I've been a server. I got fired from Applebee's actually. That was a low point in my life. I've, <laughs> yeah. I'm, so, I've, I'm sorry to laugh. That's a really great line. I got fired from Applebee's. That was a low point in my life. It I'm, really so, was. I'm really sorry to laugh I was like, that. what kind of, can I, do you swear? Yeah, of course. Like, what kind of fucking loser gets fired from Applebee's? <laughs> I, was I feel like, so bad I'm laughing right now. No, you should laugh. Okay, it's okay, hilarious. Okay. Um, I, I worked moving furniture, large appliances. I worked at uh, assisted living homes, wiping grown men's butts and helping them out. And I mean, that's uh, necessary, like good work, but it wasn't something that was personally fulfilling for me. Yeah. And so I, I've just worked every different type of job at, at factories and so on. And so after radio didn't work out, I was like, I don't, I'm not going anywhere. And my sister, lived in Germany at the time. And she talked about uh, maybe I should go abroad. And if there was any time for me to go abroad, it would be at that time, at that age. I mean, I'm uh, 23, 24, and I don't have a career. I'm relatively young still. This seemed like the right time. And so I looked at a bunch of different places to move to. I looked at uh, the Czech Republic. I looked at Spain, China, and I looked at South Korea. Now, my brother had a friend who lived How in South Korea. How did you come Korea. up with that list as you're thinking about like where to look ah, abroad? Great question. So moving abroad, it's like not it's not just about moving abroad, it's about working abroad mm. because I need to go to a place where you can work. Now, probably the most common job for expats or young expats going abroad is um, teaching English. And so I was looking for, okay, where can I teach English in, in any of these countries and where do I not really need a uh, college degree to teach English? because that's what ended up happening. Mm. So South Korea seemed like a viable option. Um, my brother had a friend there who did tutoring, English tutoring. 
And that's something you could do without a degree. People were just kind of desperate to be around um, foreign, uh, sorry, native English speakers. <clears throat> and so um, I, I just set my eyes on Korea and I thought, okay, I'm gonna do this for a year and then maybe I'll come back after that and figure something else out. And I mean, I talk about burning the boats. I knew somebody who lived in Korea who like, they got homesick after six months and they, they missed their parents and then they just left. They like broke their contract. They left one day. I was like, through my life, I've never had these types of options. And I think that's what's built up the resourcefulness and resilience that I have now is because when shit got really bad, there was no backing out. There was no plan B. There was no calling mommy or daddy. And so when I moved to South Korea, I had about $2,000 in my bank account and I've sold my car, my lease is up. I don't, the, the nicest house I could go to was my, uh, my, my dad's just kind of disgusting trailer house. Like I'm all in. And so I went to Korea and it was really challenging in the beginning um, because I need to have, uh, I need to make money by tutoring. And you might ask, well, how do you do tutoring if you don't have a degree in English? And that's what I wondered too. But then you sit down with somebody one-on-one -on -one and they're like, today I go to store. And you're like, oh, I, today I went to the store. Come on, yeah, come on, that's easy. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah. And so people wanted to learn conversational English. Mm. And it's just like you would correct a young child intuitively, that's what you're doing for people at, you know, beginning or moderate stages of their English uh, education. And for them, it's good because in Korea, Korea has such an intense focus on grammar and uh, like rules and not enough of an emphasis on how to actually speak to somebody in real life situations. And so people were craving that mm. kind of thing. Well, what was it like when you move over there for the first time? So obviously you'd never been there before. Mm -hmm. So you get over there, the plane lands, like you're, how do you get to, how do you even get to where you're supposed to be? How do you get, get the whole thing set up? Cause I think you're speaking about it now with it in the past. And it's like, yeah. Whereas me, I'm trying to picture moving to a mm. new country and just like the simple logistical things of I'm landing now. What, like, how do I know where to go? How do I know how to like get everything set up? There's all this small stuff about like, how am I paying rent? How am I, how am I getting to my job? All these simple things. How, how did you kind of react to all these things happening at once? So I think that's what set me apart from people who traditionally or typically go abroad to teach English because the most natural course for most people would be to get a contract ahead of time and then that you land, you have somebody with a sign with your name on it, you, you ride with them to your apartment. This is like, this is where you'll stay. This is where you're gonna teach. And these other teachers are gonna be your friends that you get drunk with for the next year. I didn't have any of that because I didn't have any contract set up. I just showed up. And so, so had you been in contact with anybody at this point about like, so, is this, can I do this? <laughs> so my brother's friend who was living there said I could stay in her apartment for 200 bucks a month. Now you think 200 bucks, great deal. It was definitely probably worth less than that. It's a, called an oak top apartment. It means rooftop apartment. It means there was an apartment and someone built an extra little structure on top of the apartment. And so it's like kind of like a tiny little brick house on top of a, maybe a five-story apartment. And it was about like a tiny kitchen, a common space, and then a bathroom. And so that's where I lived for the first maybe six months. And she gave me one or two contacts at a, at a nearby university that I could reach out to. And those contacts were supposed to help me figure out how to advertise myself to people who needed tutoring. Mm. So like as soon as I landed, the clock was ticking. And beyond that, I'm like, I'm... I'm in a new country for the first time. I mean, I've been to Mexico, but 
you know, that's it's not the same as going to Korea for right. the first time. I mean, this is pre-smartphones. This is pre... It was 2008, so maybe the the first iPhone just dropped. YouTube still sucks because YouTube existed, but nobody was making decent content at all. Yeah, it was all Charlie bit my finger. That's yeah, about, yes, that's exactly. about it. <laughs> and so the resources were really limited at that time. And so I, I just slowly got into figuring out how to do tutoring um, and how to make money doing that. Now, tutoring, you can make $40, $50 an hour, but you have to take a subway to someone's house, go find their place, sit down with them for an hour, go back, maybe go to a, a university across town, meet another person. And so maybe you could earn 120 bucks in a day, but it would take all day to do that. And so eventually I was able to go from tutoring to working at a kindergarten. And this wasn't easy because I didn't have a proper visa. Uh, and so I was always on a tourist visa while I was there and, and I don't have a degree. And so I don't have any of the credentials that most schools want. You know, they would want a legitimate teacher. <laughs> I was not that. And so I remember I kind of cracked the code on what it would take because I would hit up different, uh, you know, there's all these job postings online. And I would say, <clears throat> excuse me, the code was, um, oh, by the way, can I get paid in cash? And then some schools would say, oh, we don't do anything under the table. And some would go, yeah, cash, actually the cash is good for us too. So I met a kindergarten owner who was on my level where she like, she didn't report her top floor of her kindergarten to the government. She only reported like the <laughs> bottom floor. I'm like, cool, we're equally shady. I would love to work with you. And she worked with me and I made 25, approximately 2,500 bucks a month teaching full time. And so from there, that was my biggest obstacle was figuring out how to go from tutoring to uh, getting a full time job. Because I was down to about my last $80 while in Korea, um, while trying to figure out how to actually make a proper income. Um, the biggest, but that's not even the biggest challenge. It's like, okay, so now I have homeostasis. Now I have money, I have income coming in, but I was traveling. I was living in Korea on a tourist visa. Tourist visa lasts 90 days. I lived in Korea for eight years. <laughs> right. That's why this kindergarten teacher really needs to be on the same page with you. <laughs> uh, it was anxiety inducing to say the least. And so how would... You potentially get like caught that, right? You had this tourist visa. What, what are you thinking about could potentially happen that would cause this to get figured out? So the common thing, so there's the vernacular is going on a visa run. So every 90 days you have to go on a visa run. And the cheapest place to do it is I'm living in Seoul, uh, which is in the northern part of South Korea. And then you take a train down to Busan, like uh, like that name of that movie, Train to Busan. Mm -hmm. And then, so that might cost maybe uh, 60 bucks each way. And then you would take a ferry to Japan. And I, I perfected this over time. I got so good. I went to this island called Tsushima, not even all the way to mainland Japan. And then I would uh, hang out at this island for four hours, turn around, go back to Busan, go back to Seoul. I could do the whole thing in one like 16 hour day. But when you get to Tsushima, the Japanese, uh, the Japanese, somebody would interrogate me there. You know, as much as Japanese people are very sweet. So, I mean, it's, I've had uh, U.S. immigration interrogate me more hard than this guy, but he was like, um, oh, so you're coming from Korea? Yeah, okay, so you're a teacher? I'm like, no, I don't teach. Hmm, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm just traveling around. I would make up something. Or I'd say, uh, I want to go to school, which I did for some time in Korea. Um, and I would just hope 
that that would be enough to get through. I wasn't worried about the Japan side. I was worried about coming back to Korea because my passport at this time is full of stamps showing that I've gone in and out, in and out, in and out of Korea. And so every time I came back into the country, it was a, a big event for me because I had I was rehearsing, okay, what is every single question they could ask me? What is the right answer? How do I remain calm? And I'm going through my answers in my head as I'm standing in immigration and I'm looking at, okay, who should I get? This is an old dude. This is a young lady. Maybe I should go with the young lady. My, she, maybe she'd be a, a bit more passive and, and uh, receptive. I don't want, maybe a young guy might not be good. Maybe he has too much to prove. And I'm just playing all these games in my head. Uh, one time I went through immigration and they said, we need you to come to the side room. And I was like, okay, well, this is it. It's been four or five years at this point. It's been a good life. Uh, I'm probably gonna get sent home, sent home. And they go, what are you doing here? And I'm like, uh, I'm applying for school. I love Korea. I love Korean food. I'm trying to learn Korean language. I'm trying to go to Seoul University. Uh, and I did apply there and I did go to university for a semester or two. And they waited, they met among themselves and they stamped me and then they let me go. And so it's like, how, how much longer could I have done that? So every 90 days you're going through this process of yep. wondering, am I going to be sent? And you did that for eight years? Yes. Every 90 days you did that for eight years? Yes. <laughs> so it's something for a long time. I was like, can I even talk about this? Am I going to get blacklisted from Korea? Um, I don't know. <laughs> it, but it was terrifying. So within that time I transitioned just to kind of get back to how I got yeah, here yeah. doing YouTube, I transitioned from teaching to uh, filmmaking. And when I moved to Korea initially, I brought, I had this little camera called a minnow and or maybe a nano. It was kind of like what uh, the, the answer before the iPhone came out. It was just like a little palm camera and I bought a, a computer and I was making little videos documenting my experiences in moving there just, and I was posting them on Facebook for my friends and family to see. And at some point I decided I'm gonna buy a better camera, I'm gonna buy uh, a better computer and I'm gonna start taking this more seriously. And I, I you know, I'd read a, a couple different books. One I think was Talent is Overrated, which really breaks down that 10,000 hour rule and, yeah. and it has all these great examples of people in history who have become, you know, like masters in their field. And for me, that was kind of enough. They talked about you need 10,000 hours of uh, disciplined practice. No, that's not the word. Is it discipline? No. What kind of practice was it? Something along the lines of like focused or I know what you're, I know what you're, I know what you're getting at with yeah. the 10,000 hour rule. Basically like the summation of the rules that 10,000 hours dedicated to a single practice and you'll become like an expert or a master at that practice. Yes. Malcolm Gladwell's really big into that too. Yeah. And he talks about that in outliers. Yeah. And the, yes, yeah, so the, the practice needs to be such that it's kind of pushing you up against your limits. Uh, is the idea not not like you're playing uh, Wonder Wall for the thousandth time in a row on guitar? Right, right, right. Uh, and so I uh, I created a workshop in Korea. It was called the Soul Filmmakers Workshop, and I was like, I'm gonna uh, try to bring other community members together, mostly expats, but anybody could come, and they can share their knowledge and they can review my films, and I want them to tear them apart. And so I would start making videos, films, documentaries, eventually client work. People would rip it apart, and then I would try to improve it. And so I, from even from that time, I was very big on needing to find ways to improve. And eventually I was able to turn that kind of in, intense focus for improvement to a, a career and shift from teaching English to working full-time doing video in Korea. And as you're making these videos, do you have an end goal in mind? Uh, 
like, are you making these specifically for a purpose? Do you have an idea of selling these? Do you have an idea of working with anybody or like a direct or anything along those lines in terms of the business side of it? Or at this point, is it just, I have an interest in this and I want to get really good at it? Um, I, I just wanted to get really good at it. And you know, I was the, of my, uh, of all of the parents between, you know, of, of my mom and dad's parents, cause I have two younger siblings that are uh, half siblings, but between my older brother and sisters, uh, brothers and sisters, they, they all graduated from university. I mean, one got a PhD, one got a, a law degree and like I'm failed out of university all these times. Like I felt like a fucking loser compared to my family. And I was like, maybe if I develop this one skill, then I'll, I'll actually have some kind of value I can bring to the world and something I can fall back on. And I'm always waiting to like, you know, at any moment I might get kicked out of Korea. And then at least I could go back to the USA with a skill, with an understanding of how to, to do video and do production. And then I can uh, have that as a skill to, to offer clients. And it's, it's, it's an interesting thing when you look at a traditional career path versus like developing skills, because when you get really good at the career you're in, you're getting really good at that the way that company wants you to be good at it. So yes, if you are looking for upward mobility in a company, that's a great way to do it. It's much more stable, much more secure than your approach to it, but you're developing skills specific to how they want you to do it. So if you ever lose your job or if they have layoffs or something like that, all of a sudden you're out of this company and your set of skills is tailored to what they need versus the path that you took that you go, I don't even know what I'm going to be using the skill for, but having a skill be highly developed, someone out there is going to need that skill, whether it's a specific company, whether you're working as a contractor, whether you start your own business that I've always kind of looked at it that way too, that you go like, so starting this coffee business, I go, okay, in all likelihood, it's going to fail based on all the research of small business. Will I learn enough out of this that if it does fail, I've learned enough that those skills will be applicable elsewhere. And so, but it's still really interesting to hear you're in Korea and you're like having people tear apart these films with the sole purpose of, I want to get really good at that. That's really cool. So you're having people come in, tear apart these films. You're starting to pick up the skills of video editing. Where does it go from there? At what point do do you, I don't know if you consider yourself now, but at what point do you feel comfortable enough that you're like, I'm really good at this? Mm. Uh, okay. So I, I did have a moment. Um, so I worked with a couple of other people there and we formed a company together. And of course we didn't do it through my name cause I'm still there legally, but we did it through my friend who was there legitimately. Uh, my friend, actually my friend Oro who uh, is Cuban, but had citizenship in or a residency, I'm not sure. He was he was able to legally start a business in Korea. <laughs> and so we did it through his name. Um, we, I just remember the day, this is so funny because he and I struggled so long to figure out how to make money, how to be profitable. And he and I would lived in the same apartment and we would even like uh, split, we would kind of give ourselves like an allowance. Okay, like we each get $250 a week. Uh, uh, our money, other collective Collectively, our money is going to pay for rent and electricity, but then for our own personal spending, we get $250 a week. And, you know, I'm trying to, like, date people, trying to have a life. It wasn't a good time. And so we kept struggling. (laughs) (laughs) My wife's in the background. You were dating who? (laughs) Ancient history. Um, So... Eventually, we got a contract, a big contract, and I remember it was for $15,000, and it was plenty of work. It was probably a couple of months of work, and I remember 
as soon as we signed the contract and I knew I had it in the bank, I was super depressed. I, I just got really depressed that night. And I was like, and, and then this has been maybe a theme um, a bit throughout my life. And, and I think something that a lot of people who are really driven experience, which is that they just get so focused on, on a goal for years. And then once you achieve it, you're like, well, what now what the fuck? Because I felt like I cracked the code. I'm like, I moved to Korea. I learned filmmaking. I, I, now I know how to make $15,000 from uh, a client. Now what? It's that same feeling when you're watching a really great TV show and you finish the last episode of the last season. You know it's never going to happen. And you're like, wow, I love that. And then it ends and you're like, oh, life keeps going on. But now I don't have right. this. I, I, I've had that feeling before that you set these goals – years in advance and you're like once I get here we made it and I'm good at this and so you get this contract you're now like a certified professional Mm. through your company and the feeling you get is like well shit now I'm getting paid to do the work that I've been working on this skill to do so what was it like working on this project kind of working with those feelings that you're harboring of like, I'm doing exactly what I built out to, or set out to do. And now I don't know how I feel about it. Well, I think this was a good catalyst, which helped bring me into the idea of making my own content for myself. Mm. And so, you know, doing client work sucks uh, as a uh, videographer and as a video director, because clients don't know what they want. They will spend, they will, all clients will be like, we want to make a corporate video. And it's, it's like the generic, happy motivational music in the background that royal crappy royalty free music it's like here at bing bong company we do things a little bit differently like that kind of crap (laughs) and then everyone's smiling working at their desk but they really want to kill themselves (laughs) and and then like you interview people and then you go you get the the video done it's a company introduction video and you get seven rounds of feedback and then you throw it on fucking youtube and it gets 300 views (laughs) and you're like what the fuck are we doing here this sucks. Nobody wants this. And so I would, I was learning more and more about content marketing. And this is where I eventually got into my own content. But I listened to Gary Vee's first book, Crush It. And he talks about, you know, making content that people are going to want to follow and subscribe to, giving value to people. And then you can try to have a call to action at the end of that. And so we, uh, I would pitch clients on content marketing and, and uh, making you know, no corporate videos, but how about we do monthly videos uh, that could be of benefit to to people watching. And and eventually I was just like, why don't I do this for myself? And I had a couple different ideas for content, but the one that stuck obviously was the food show. And when I made it, initially I was inspired by two different channels, H3H3, which used to do comedy. Um, do you know H3H3? Yeah. Okay. He, he, uh, he used to do comedy. <laughs> And then there was another channel called Jack's Gap. Now it's like a reality show, like drama series. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Now he's just a professional agitator of everyone. So uh, Jack's Gap was also a really good show. And, you know, back then, this is around 2014, there weren't any good travel shows on YouTube. And most of the tra- – there's a handful of uh, guys doing food stuff. Um, Mark Weens had already started before that, and he's somebody who's um, – also been very successful in this niche. Um, but there, I just remember seeing so many different travel shows and it, it felt like they were, um, they, they were trying to emulate the travel channel, which is to be dry, boring. Today, we're in Cairo. Cairo has a long, rich history. And it's like, man, this is fucking boring. And so I was like, what if I took some of the 
inspirational wanderlust kind of feelings I got from watching Jack Scaff and mix that with some of the silly comedy of H3H3 and made a show like that. And so that was initially the idea for the show. Of course, it's evolved and changed greatly from, since then. And it was probably too silly in the beginning. And I, you know, I've learned so many lessons and that's what's great about growing a channel on YouTube is over time I've learned that um, I, I don't need to be the spotlight. Uh, I just need to be a catalyst for the culture or for mm. the food or people that people are there to watch. And sometimes you're in a really extreme scenario. You're with a tribe or you're eating placenta in Northern Thailand or something wild. And you realize, um, I don't need to make crazy jokes. I don't need to be uh, quirky here. I just need to kind of step back a little bit and let this amazing content that we've discovered speak for itself. Um, so I started the show in Korea and it took a long time to kind of figure it out and try to, I mean, nobody is watching it. It's tough. It's tough to make a YouTube channel yeah. and nobody will watch it for a long time if you do. Um, and, and even once I started to get some traction, uh, maybe I'd got up to 10, 12,000 subscribers. I, I saw, this is a funny story because it shows that I still didn't have confident, confidence in what I was doing. There's this guy named uh, Mark Bell. Have you ever heard of Mark Bell? Oh yeah. So I'm a big fan. They said they were looking for a social media guy, and I'm like... Now, I want to pause real quick. For those who listening who don't know who Mark Bell is, that's not the name I expected. We're talking Bigger, Stronger, Faster guy, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, his brother made the documentary Bigger, Stronger, Faster. It's all about, like, powerlifting, the use of steroids, and, like, that whole... Kind of, and now he has kind of, like, shifted and is more about, like, longevity, but he's, like, this big-time person in the fitness community. So that's not the name I expected. I'm very curious how Mark Bell comes up in your story. Yeah, because outside of food, I'm a big fan of comedy and a big fan of, you know, weightlifting and fitness and stuff like that. So um, <laughs> I just saw what, because I followed him, I saw a post said they're looking for a social media guy. And it's like, these are the skills I've been building for the last few years. This would be perfect. And then I could finally have certainty because I had too much uncertainty in my life living in Korea, never knowing if I'm going to get um, deported and uh, not really knowing where I'm going with my career and, and so on. And so I, it's not like I'd been doing, I, I hadn't been doing the show enough to have conviction in it. Mm. And so I did an interview with him. Maybe I was too cocky. I don't know. Or maybe they just went in another direction. One day I'll be able to ask him. But I just remember saying, you will never find someone who could do more with less than me. Maybe too intense. <laughs> <laughs> they went with someone else. That's fine. What Again, these are those in life you think you take these L's sometimes and you think that this is the worst thing that could have happened and it's one of the best things that could have happened just like when my my tv pilot got canceled we can talk about that yeah because that comes soon after so i'm making the show um i'm i'm planning uh out of nowhere i get a, a message from high noon entertainment high noon entertainment is a production company that's made a lot of stuff for i think diy a, a lot of reality stuff diy channel maybe food network travel channel and I mean, to me, it was insane that they even found my channel. That's also a funny story. And I had such a small following, but they thought I was interesting enough to try to pitch for a television show. And so I'm still in Korea at this point. My channel's still very new. Maybe I have around 15, 16,000 subscribers. Mm -hmm. I'm not making money at all from this endeavor. Um, Excuse me. So... Uh, we The whole TV process is insane, and that's a whole different story in itself. 
I guess the short version is you have to do a sizzle reel. Mm -hmm. uh, they cut that together and they go, okay, that's interesting. Now you can do like a, a proof of concept. You can shoot like 11 minutes of a pilot. And then I went and did that because I, I had flew to Florida to go shoot that. And then they go, okay, this is good. And then they gave me two pilots. They said, this is unprecedented. They gave me a travel channel pilot and a food network pilot at the same time. And I shot one after the other. Um, and so I, the funny part about how they found me, by the way, before I go too much into what happened with that TV show, um, nobody watched my show back then. Maybe, maybe I'd get a thousand views in a video. Mm -hmm. And I asked them, I remember asking them, how'd you find my channel? And they go, oh, you know what? We were researching like top travel vloggers, bloggers, something like that. And I go, okay. And they go, yeah. So you weren't on the list, <laughs> but in the comments, there was somebody who said, hey, you guys have to check out this channel. It's called Best Ever Food Review Show. It's really funny. He does comedy and food. And his, his actually, the comment was written by someone named Sonny. <laughs> and I go, I wrote that. <laughs> So because of a comment, because I, I was so desperate to try to get my name out yeah, there, I wrote my own my comment promoting myself, and a TV researcher found it, and then that's how all the TV stuff started. I've always said this when you're starting a business or whatever you're doing, I go, you got to throw shame out the window. There's a lot of people that start a business or start their new projects and whatever, and they go, well, I don't want to be too much. I don't want to be annoying. I go, if you got to throw that out the window because I used to get made fun of that a lot earlier on. It's like, you're always wearing your own merchandise. You're always wearing this or that. And I go, well, if I'm not the one, if I'm not hyping it up as much as possible, who will? So I love that kind of stuff. I used to do that all the time. I'd comment as Folly on people's like, I've heard Folly Coffee's really good and it's clearly posted by Folly Coffee. Right. <laughs> like, I go, no shame. Whatever it takes. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Whatever it takes. So you're filming two pilots. Mm -hmm. Where does it go from there? So you film the two pilots back to back in Florida and then at that point you send it off to them and what's the feedback or how does that process go down? Well, so making a TV show takes forever and maybe from them reaching out to me for the first time to it airing on television probably took a year and a half. Jeez. And so a lot transpired in that time. And so what happened with my channel, so I'll come back to what happened with the result of the pilot, yeah. just in the interest of going chronologically is that I, I visited Korea and I, uh, sorry, I left Korea and I visited Vietnam. And I just planned to go there to shoot for seven days. I had a friend who I said, I'd pay for your flight if you help me film it. Cause I, I always had buddies who were camera guys and they would help film me. Cause that was always my style. I, I didn't like filming myself. I wanted someone to film me. And so while I was in Vietnam, I just stumbled upon this incredible opportunity. And, and maybe I just saw it as that cause I was ready to be done with Korea. I felt like I'd achieved everything I could there. And I wasn't gonna really rise up more without actually becoming Korean, like learning Korean fluently and yeah, this is a whole different topic, but even then you're never gonna be accepted in Korea mm. as a foreigner. So in Vietnam, I, got, I, I met a company who said, if you come here, we'll pay you, uh, if you, uh, sorry, they were a, a travel company and they did food tours um, and they did uh, um, different trips and, and stuff tourists could do when they come there. Uh, and so, they said they needed videos to promote their company and they wanted me to help make them promotional videos. So their deal, it's funny, my buddy Andrew right here on the TV that you're seeing now, he's the one who worked with that company and spoke to me and he goes, I could talk to the boss, but um, pretty sure I can get you $500 a month. And I was like, uh, that's not gonna cut it. <laughs> that sounds pretty brutal. Five, and it's like, wow, okay, Vietnam. 
Uh, things are a lot cheaper, but if you're working for a Vietnamese company, you're probably going to feel the, the effect of getting paid less too. And so we made a deal, thousand bucks a month. It, they'd give me a place to live and they'd give me, uh, supply me with a, a camera guy. Hmm. And so that's the deal I took. And I mean, again, this is another like burning the boats type of moment. I took all my savings from Korea which is decent this time, maybe it's like around again, like ten, twelve thousand $12,000 and threw away all my stuff, got all my belongings down to one or two suitcases and I moved to Vietnam and started over. And the whole mission was to work on this food channel. I was like, okay, there's tons of content I can do in Vietnam, Thailand's nearby, Cambodia's nearby, Philippines nearby, all these places in Southeast Asia that don't require a ton of money to shoot that have really fascinating food, either if it's fascinating because it's exotic or, I mean, I just think Asia has the most delicious food in general. And so that's what that's what got me started uh, in moving to Vietnam. That's how I transitioned because I've lived in Vietnam maybe um, seven years now. So eight years in Korea and then now I'm still in Vietnam now. So I was steadily building up my channel and I, I was making over, maybe it'd been like a year and a half to two years in, I'm starting to break even, plus I'm getting a little bit of support from the guy who hired me. Around this time, I get the news about the pilot. So they've run, the, uh, they've aired the, the pilot on TV. They ended up putting both of them on Travel Channel. So it kind of was like, okay, so really it was just two, it wasn't two pilots, it was two episodes of one show. Uh, inevitably, they didn't pick it up. Hmm. The major reason uh, is because the Scripps Network which is owned by, uh, who, who owned Food Network and Travel Channel, they were selling those channels to Discovery. Hmm. And I'm sure you listen to podcasts, you hear about this stuff all the time uh, in entertainment. One company buys another company, they wanna wipe the slate clean. They're like, yeah, cool. I'm, I'm sure this project's great. It's not my project, it's, it's, it's done. Yeah, Don't care. And they were talking to me about other concepts. Do you wanna shoot something else? We'd be happy to, uh, I'm sure we'll, they, they would want to see another product from you. We could pitch some more shows. And I was just like, I'm out. I'm good. I'm good. And it's really the best thing that could have happened to me because I got this high level, like film school level um, experience, uh, seeing how a real TV show produces on the ground and seeing how, um, how do they shoot? What gear are they using? How do the how does the producer work with the team? What do their call sheets look like? And I remember just asking, I asked the camera guys a million questions. I, I tried to soak up everything I could while I was there. And I told myself one year from now, when I go back to Vietnam, my team's gonna operate like this. And now they absolutely do. Now, my team does research. They talk to me about topics. Now my team buys plane tickets, they buy hotels. Um, they do the logistics, they plan hour by hour. I get handed a, a Folder. Actually, I used to get handed a folder. Now I have a producer that I don't have to get handed anything. Now I have a producer <laughs> who joins and I just stand in line at the airport while they deal with all the the baggage issues or, or whatever comes up. So we have, a, you know, an, an amazing team now that runs like a professional TV production studio, except we are hyper, hyper focused on one type of content. So didn't get the TV show, which is good. And cause, cause if you get the TV show, the problem is you're locked in for five years. Mm. You sign a contract for five years and these contracts are really bullshit. Um, 
there, there were so many weird things that transpired when uh, going through the contracts for the show. One is they first told me that you're going to have to trash your social media. You can't do social media huh. while you do TV. And I was like, then I'm out. Don't care. Don't and, and that seems so counterintuitive because you would think that a host of a TV show, if they're popular on social media, that if I'm a TV exec, I'd be like, we want you to double down on social media. We want people driving to this, but it's probably some of that old school mentality of like, it's us versus social media, as opposed to this can be a major driver of people to this show. And then the other side of it, when, when I look at what you do versus like a TV show, I kind of look at the, like the floor and the ceiling to your your capabilities, your earnings potential, your reach potential. And when you look at a TV show, it seems to me that it's a really high floor, mm. that the floor of being on a TV show is like, I'm on a TV show, I'm getting a steady paycheck, I have a contract, I know what hopefully each season's going to be, and then if it goes well, we could do this as long as we possibly want. But the ceiling is also low. Because you have that contract, they control everything you do. They also will probably dilute what you do quite a bit because they're trying to reach the broadest audience possible. So some of the things that you might think are better or funnier or more interesting, they're going to be like, we don't want to really oh. approach that because we don't want to uh, intimidate. In fact, I watched one of your YouTube videos about YouTube itself kind of demonetizing videos because they right. said this is shocking or it, like, I don't know if the word's inappropriate, but like shocking content because you're showing food practices of other cultures. But I'm curious before we get into that, was there a point in this process where you hit a major catalyst or a major tipping point where there was a, because I'm looking at nine and a half million subscribers on YouTube, which is crazy when you really think about it. Right. That's such an insane amount of people. And and the, the way I discovered you was your video with Yia, and he was like, hey, check out this video. And I checked it out right when it went out, and it was already, like, in the hundreds of thousands. And then all of a sudden, uh, actually over Christmas, uh, we were wa I was like, oh, we, sh we were just watching YouTube videos. I was like, oh, check out this great video. I was like, this thing has three-plus million views on it. It's absurd. Is there a point in a process where it really started to tip for you? And then I'm curious, was it taking the same strategy and approach and just grinding at it until it worked? Or did you continue to shift the way you film videos shot and kind of even with YouTube, like the way you title things or the thumbnail, at what point in the process did it really start to turn into what you now consider it is today? Sure. Um, so yeah, there's a few things there. First is one of the major inflection points was when we went to the Philippines for maybe the second or third time. And I did a video about uh, so they have jeepneys there. Jeepneys are a relic of uh, maybe World War II, like old American um, like troop jeeps that I think were left there. And then uh, that may be incorrect, but it's close enough. <laughs> so uh, they, they still use that today. Instead of buses, largely for local transportation, they use these jeepneys and you can crawl in the back and you pay money to the driver and you jump out the back. And so I rented a jeepney and then I went to the most beloved restaurant in the Philippines, which is which is Jollibee. And so the video was eating Jollibee in a jeepney and kind of reviewing the food. And it was just a simple, silly video. Uh, but it really it maybe got like 4 million views on Facebook. And I think this is when I broke 100,000 on YouTube. And so I, I think that was really the start of my channel starting to gain more momentum. With the channel itself, Yes, you have to pivot. You have to pivot and you have to see what works because I tried even some stuff that was not food related. Even in that same trip, I tried doing like a karaoke, jeepney karaoke. Okay, get in, sing a song, and then you get a free ride. And it was a bit cringy and people were like, who's this guy? Why do I have to sing? I just want to go home. 
and people were like, this isn't food related. And I was like, okay, good. Lesson learned. Don't do that again. <laughs> and then, uh, but you learn, you learn more of what works and what doesn't work over time. And you have to just double down on what works. As far as building my team, I would say I probably added somebody about every three months. And so it was very organic and it was, uh, we were able to really build a, a culture with uh, a very high standard. Now we have about 20 employees. So if you look at my team in, in total now, so we started again, bare roots in the beginning, camera guy, soon after we got one producer, that's it. Me, camera guy, producer. In the beginning, I was shooting everything that I wasn't in. I was shooting the making of the food and the, and the uh, beauty shots of the food and, and all that. And now we have two camera guys, we have five producers, we have six, one, two, three, four, five, six, uh, five people on our main channel, four people on our second channel. We have someone who just does thumbnails. Uh, we have a lady who cooks lunch everybody, <laughs> for everybody every day. Uh, and so and we have a big office space. Um, and, and so we're, we were really, I was really able to grow it organically over time as our needs um, increased. And so, I mean, even two years ago, maybe two and a half years ago, I was still editing videos. Mm. And I, I think, you know, with, as with any business, you start learning over time, like, okay, where am I becoming the bottleneck? Mm. And that became more and more evident because my team was needing me to do meetings for the productions that were coming up, to review videos, to do voiceover. And I'm like, no one talked to me for four hours, I'm editing. And so now, now I haven't edited anything for a long time. And I mean, we have really a top-notch, world-class team of editors and I cannot say enough good about them. And if you would have told me years ago that I could hire a bunch of Vietnamese folks who speak English as a second language, and they would ha have editing skills and storytelling ability that exceeds most of what you see on television now, I would not have believed you, but that is in fact the case. And that was my big takeaway in watching your videos. It's, it's sometimes you see someone video, someone's video and you go, oh, this is good. Like th they did a nice job here. And then I watch your videos and I go, oh, this is above what I would expect to be on TV. Mm. Like the, the editing, the way it is cut the, from the beginning intro to the story to the length of time, it's really engaging. And so it sounds like really just as it's growing organically, you had the mindset that I want to continue to reinvest what we make back into this team, back into the process, which is, it sounds simple, but I think a lot of people in your position, if they started having the success, uh, success on YouTube, they would say, okay, I want to continue to do this with a team of two people because then we can make more money off what we're mm. doing versus having a longer term approach and saying, anytime we have an opportunity to add a talented team member, that's going to make it better. And having that longer term vision of continuing to hire and build the team. One thing I was curious as I'm watching your videos, because you find yourself in the weirdest places in these crazy scenarios. How do you connect with the people around the world that you're going in to film what they do, what the food they're making. And because it's, it's like, I find you with a tribe in Africa hunting and I'm like, how did he contact this tribe to begin mm. filming with them in the first place? So, uh, yeah, that's a great question. I think one compliment that, I mean, uh, that I like hearing from people who watch and comment on the videos is that I'm able to, um, kind of connect with a range of people from mm -hmm. all different backgrounds. I would say, I think it's because I just have humble beginnings. And I, I my dad was blue collar. Uh, my friends were, you know, salt of the earth type people. I just never had any sense. If anything, like the people I'm more awkward around would be the more um, like 
white collar, I don't know, people who go on yachts. I, I still feel like I could connect with them. <laughs> Those people are also more rare. Yeah. But I, I mean, just as simple as how do you reach out to them in the first place to say, can oh, we actually come connect? Yeah, like we literally connect. But I absolutely agree with what you're saying. Oh, I, I do, well, do want to finish this one point, though. Yeah, because, of course. Because, and then I'll absolutely tell you that, too. Uh, this is something that's important to me because occasionally people might comment on a video, especially of me with the tribe, and they'll see like I'm, they, they think I'm too, um, they, they might think I'm being disrespectful yeah. in ways. And what's hard is you hang out with a tribe for 12 hours and you're joking around. And even if you don't speak the same language, like there's different ways to joke with people <laughs> without saying words. And once in a while I've been accused of, of being rude or uh, just, I don't know, uh, disrespectful occasionally by a handful of people who have their own issues. I would say that my secret is I, I don't think I'm better than these people. And that mo most of the places I go to, even if it's just like, okay, we go to hang out with the Datoga tribe in Tanzania. They're the tribe who they cut the cow open. They rip open the intestines. They take out the blood. They're ripping the raw liver out, tearing it up, dipping it in blood and basically gastric acid which is close pretty close to just being called shit and then eating that and i look around at their their life like they're in nature they have one of the most beautiful fucking views you could ever hope to see with uh i think uh, mount kilimanjaro far in the distance and they have community overall they have enough food and they have probably healthier food than folks are eating here and i don't go look at all these look at these poor people i think they, they've got something here. And that's something I'm able to do at most places around the world where I go. And and so that's one reason I feel so comfortable sometimes teasing people or joking around with people from different cultures is because I don't actually feel like I'm above you. How do we connect with them? Uh, so every, every country we go to at this point, we usually work with what's called a fixer. And the fixer is like a local producer. Mm. And so our producer, We'll connect with a local. So in Tanzania, let's say my buddy Gumbo, um, he's somebody I met through another friend who does travel. He's an expert on that country. And both of us, both sides will do research and we'll say here are tribes or, or people that we're interested in, in visiting or foods that we want to see. And then the producers really just start working closely with the fixer to start shaping a story and seeing who they can contact. Someone's going to have to go out and do scouting on their side before we even get there. Hopefully they send us proper photo and video of what to expect. Um, and so that's what gets us there in the first place. And then a lot is still figured out on the ground. Now being however you want to categorize like a, a YouTube show, because even to this day, especially when you're talking about different generations of people, YouTube is perceived very differently. If you're speaking to a younger crowd, they value YouTube over traditional network TV. If you're talking to someone that's older, they probably don't even know that there are people that can make a living doing YouTube. Right. I'm curious what it's like, because I'm sure even in the States, you have someone I do a YouTube show that they may or may not agree to film with you. Do, when you're visiting all these places around the world, do people generally get what you're doing? Because <laughs> it is an interesting proposition to say, can I come into your home and basically film how you eat and I'll eat with you and we're filming a YouTube show? How difficult is it to explain to someone or is it the fact that you've built this following? Is it somewhat easy to kind of explain and get people to like understand what you're doing? Um, I don't, it's not a challenge most of the time. 
Yeah, I mean, so there's a wide range, right? We were just in South Africa and Johannesburg, and there were tons of fans. There's a lot of fans of the show who are there. One guy, I mean, it's a Sunday. People drink on Sundays, but they also drink every day, to be fair. (laughs) This guy pulled over. Bro, I know you. He swung open his door, took his still full 40, put it on the street, and then stumbled out of his vehicle to take a picture with me, jump back in. Okay, these guys know what's up, uh, generally in a city like that. And so when we're going to the re- uh, restaurant tours, when we're filming with uh, people in the streets, they get what it's all about. But we recently went to a village on the border of India and Myanmar to visit the last headhunters. Hmm. Um, these are guys who actually have killed people. They're all old now. They're all like 70s, 80s. But back in their youth, before Christianity spread there, they would kill. And, and I was like, who would you guys kill? Like uh, folks in Myanmar or like from a different country? They're like just other people from our, from like the same tribe, hmm. the Cognac tribe. And they kill other Cognac people. It's like, oh, Jesus. So it was brutal times there. And um, every guy I talked to killed at least four to five to six people in their youth. And they don't really know what YouTube is. Right. So when we're with villagers, we, we need to work a little bit differently. And we really need to walk them step by step what to do. Especially, you know, we're still a food show. So we're trying to get every step of the cooking process. And so we'll have to work really closely. I mean, just um, logistically, we'll have a camera guy, we'll have our producer, and then we'll have the local producer, and then we'll have the person cooking. And usually you need those four together in order to get the, the making of food filmed in a village. Do you ever step back and like look at what you're doing now? And because I, I always kind of ask this question to people that I look at and I go, damn, it's like crazy where you're at now. But I think it's also easy to become normalized to what your life is every step along the way. Do you ever look back and kind of look at the process you've gone through where you are now? Did you expect to get here has this taken you by surprise or how do you even process everything as you're looking at the following you have, the videos you're posting, the people you get to meet, the traveling around the world, trying some of the craziest foods and encountering some of like the wildest stories? Because that story you just told most people in the world, that would be the wildest story they have. That would be right. that be the one that you keep in the back pocket that you go, if I need to seem interesting, I'm going to tell them about the time <laughs> that I met the headhunters. Right. And for you, that was just like, oh, that was a shoot we did. Yeah. How do you kind of process where you're at now? Is it, I guess the biggest thing is like, did you always know or have a feeling it was going to get here or has this whole thing taken you by surprise? Um, it's a combination. Uh, there's no way that when I started out, I thought I would be here. Definitely not. Uh, and, but I, I see it now as a profound responsibility. Um, I have the responsibility of, of people to, uh, to the audience an accountability to the audience and an accountability to my team and accountability to myself to make sure that I'm upholding the highest standards possible. And, you know, similar things, I told you the story about getting that $15,000 contract and then feeling depressed afterwards. Similar things have happened throughout the journey of this channel because I've known here and there, uh, the pandemic was a hard one where I knew we weren't doing what, what I hoped we could be doing. Um, we also, after I, I was... Um, I had to be away from Vietnam for a long time, for 10 months, because I had to leave the country. We couldn't shoot there, pandemic stuff, and the borders were sealed 10 months on the road, couldn't go home. And eventually I went home and I told myself, you know what, let's do a noodle tour because it's just going to be easy. 
and I can kind of relax and kick back and we don't have to do something so intense. And I don't know how to say this. I don't mean to uh, um, talk badly about my own work, but by the end of it, I felt fucking depressed because I was like, this is the least challenging thing I've ever mm. done. I find it boring. It's not that fun. I got to hang out with my buddy, Kelvin, and I, you know, eat good noodles in Vietnam. That's good. But I just told myself at the end of the day, I'm still tired. So why don't I be tired and shoot something that's challenging for myself? So I think part of success is recreating adversity, fabricating adversity for yourself. I, I face so much adversity, figuring out how to go from being uneducated, poor white trash to where I am now, to, to having a successful YouTube channel. Um, I faced adversity in Korea, figuring out how to make money, how to get a career, how to build a uh, vocation. And now within, even though I, I really appreciate your compliments about the channel and how far we've come, I, I, I must always tell myself it's not enough because it, uh, cause, it can never be perfect and it can always be a little bit better. And so for me, one of the things I did for this coming year was to plan every country I wanna go to ahead of time. Usually we're going like, okay, well in the next few months we'll do maybe this country, this country. And so that's why we recently went to Nepal, why we went to Northeast India, one of the, uh, a place in India that's rarely visited where they have very unique food, but it's very challenging to get there. Um, that's why we're going to be going to places like uh, Laos uh, coming up. We're going to Borneo, um, the fourth largest island in the world, which is, uh, which includes three different countries, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Brunei, all within this one island. So life, life for me now, or this job for me now, is um, seeing this great fortune as uh, a responsibility and... Um, I must remain accountable to everybody involved, including myself. And that theme is something that I've learned a lot through this podcast. When I meet people that I go, what continues to drive you? Because I think for a lot of people, once they hit that goal, once they get that $15,000 contract, they go, I made it. I finally accomplished my goal. I'm now getting paid to do what I work to do. And I think a lot of it, and I've said this before many times, is the difference between external motivation and internal motivation. I think there are a lot of people who are only externally motivated. They're only taking the steps that someone is giving them and working hard towards those goals. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there's a different type of internal motivation where you are putting up successful videos about a noodle tour. There's absolutely nothing wrong with those. Those videos are great, but you are looking at them going, it's not good enough for me. Right. Versus the external validation is extremely high on those videos. Yeah. A lot of views, a lot of comments, people are loving it. And you're sitting back and going, I still know I can do better. And that seems to be a theme consistent across people that I think are having success and continue to have success and grows that. And some people might call it the tortured art artist complex that it's mm. like you are your own worst critic, but it seems to be those people that tend to have long sustained success versus hitting a goal becoming complacent, maybe even regressing in what you're doing. Now, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. It was, re I really appreciate you setting it up. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and I, I told you before we walked in that I was like, I hope he knows like what the Folly Coffee podcast is. Not a big deal here. I love it. But uh, you even said it as we were walking in that it it's moments like this that Yes, we may not get a ton of views or listens. I'm not making money off of this, but the people I get to meet, this is definitely 
one of those moments for me. So I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Um, My pleasure. Yeah, and I'll end it like I do every other episode and say have a nice day.